Good morning. I'm going to read Galatians 5, 22 through 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Well, hey, everybody at Vintage Church. It's John Tyson here. What a joy to be with you today, being able to bring God's Word to you. And I've been watching from New York, just really thrilled at the way you've responded to this whole crisis. And uh, love your church, love your team. Gare's been a good friend of mine for a few years now. And I'm really, really honored that I get the chance to preach to you in the midst of this pandemic. And today we're going to be talking about something we don't talk about very much in our culture, but something that is fundamental and essential to the Christian life. And that is about the issue of self-control. So let me open in prayer and then we will pick up on this theme. So let's pray together. Father, we just want to say thank you for the ways that you have been working in the midst of all of the confusion and chaos uh, going around us at the moment. Father, we thank you for your word that it is alive and it's active. We thank you that it gives light. Thank you that it tells us the truth. Thank you that it speaks hope into us. And we just want to pray right now, Holy Spirit, that wherever our friends are listening, that you would take this word and that you would speak to their hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're wrapping up our Fruit of the Spirit series and we're going to be talking about the fruit of self-control. I hope that this series has made its way deep into your heart and that it's really shaped your vision of what it means to have the character of Jesus flow through your life, that we're being formed out of the image of the world and into the image of Christ. And so I chose this series in the midst of this pandemic because I felt like the soil of our hearts would be disproportionately open and tender to whatever was spoken into it. And so as we close this out today, I hope that this becomes an anchor point in how you think about following Jesus for the years and seasons that are ahead. And today we're talking about self-control, which is so important. It's the last fruit of the Spirit. But I also think it may be the most important because it's the one that enables all of the other fruits of the Spirit to be actualized in Christian community. So let's jump in and take a look at the fruit of the Spirit of self-control. Now, whenever you talk about self-control, we, we almost bristle a little bit because we know that there's areas in each of our lives, in different areas for every one of us, where things are a little bit out of control. There's some areas that we just struggle to master in our lives. And we often can feel that there is a war of desires. We're filled with longings and ambition and hunger and, and, and eros. It's in us. And we're trying to figure out what do we do with these things. And these things are actually gifts if they're used properly. One of my favorite quotes from Ronald Rollheiser talks about the urgency of understanding and properly channeling these desires. Look at what he says. There is within us a fundamental dis-ease, an unquenchable fire that renders us incapable in this life of ever coming to full peace. 
This desire lies at the center of our lives, in the marrow of our bones and in the deep recesses of the soul. At the heart of all great literature, poetry, art, philosophy, psychology, and religion lies the naming and analyzing of this desire. Spirituality is ultimately about what we do with that desire. What we do with our longings, both in terms of handling the pain and the hope they bring us, that is our spirituality. Augustine says, you've made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Spirituality is about what we do with our unrest. In our world today, every now and then somebody emerges who seems to figure out how to take all of these desires in their heart and master something. These are people I call cultural Jedis. These are people who just sort of seem to rise above the masses with a kind of self-control and discipline that leaves us in awe. Right now, uh, we're in the, the cultural wave of the last dance. And this is about Jordan, the basketball Jedi, And the great discussion, is he the goat? Is he really the goat? Surely the last dance has settled in people's mind. The goatness of Michael Jordan. He was just unparalleled, without peer on the court. However, what the documentary has also revealed to us is that behind the scenes, he was not the master of his emotions and his relationships as the same way as he was on on the court and so all of us in some sense can be like that there's areas we're good at and there's areas that we struggle with and they leave us feeling torn many traditions particularly buddhism have pointed out that unbridled desire can be the source of spiritual sorrow and the downfall of many of our lives buddhism's taught for millennia that the root of all human suffering and dissatisfaction is this unbridled desire. In our world today, I think that we have various responses about what we do with these desires in our hearts. One response is that of releasing our desires, and this is the way of hedonism. Another response is the repression of desire, and this is the way of religion. And I'm going to examine both of these cultural responses to the energy and the passion and the longing and the love and the lust and the life we feel in our hearts. I'm going to examine them and where they lead. But ultimately, I want to talk about redirecting our desire because this is the way of spiritual formation and this is ultimately the way of Jesus. And my goal at the end of this talk is that you'll see through the lies of hedonism You won't be fooled by the self-righteousness of religion and you will have a rich, compelling vision of why surrendering our desires to Jesus ultimately leads to life. So let's look at this first vision, what we do with the angst and the energy inside of us. Releasing our desire, the way of hedonism. 2 Timothy 3.3 says this, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not lovers of the good. 
Now, when we look through our culture today, I think it is honestly very, it's almost startling how much these end times cultural warnings map the world that we live in today. People will be without self-control. One of the things that seems so interesting, and and many sociologists and um, students of culture have tried to figure out how have we experienced such a breakdown in traditional morality at this time of history. Well, often what ends up happening, or one way to understand it, is that hedonism is ultimately the death rattle of a lost vision of godliness. One generation starts by genuinely loving God or having a vision of faith as a source of goodness in a culture, and so they restrain themselves, not out of self-righteousness, but out of a, a vision that this is the good and proper way to live. If they fail to pass the heart of their godliness onto the next generation, the next generation will have the shell of the morality and behavior without the motivation of it. And then the generation that comes after that will look at this morality and not see a reason to uphold it. And so they will drift into ultimately rebellion and hedonism doing whatever they want. And if we were to summarize where are we in American society today, We are at the tail end of hedonism and whatever comes next. And I put in here one last Tiger King joke, almost facetiously, but what's after hedonism is like the next Tiger King-ish thing. It's like it just seems like we're on a downward slope where we've lost all restraint or ability to say no to our desires. One way of articulating what this cultural vision has become is from a man from a scholar named Alan Mann and he talked about modern society a hedonistic society being summed up in this phrase project self and i've used this phrase over the years because i think it's the best descriptor of how the typical person today views life project self means society exists as a blank canvas for my own self definition expression and enjoyment I get to determine what's good. I get to determine what matters for me. And society exists to maximize my personal possibility. And if anything gets in the way, I'm going to go to war with it and call it oppression. And this is just showing up all over the place, particularly around the areas of our sacred commitments. I remember having uh, a meal with a pastor who had recently denied all of his vows, abandoned his family, left his theological tradition. And I sat down, not not to sort of probe or to judge or condemn, but to try and understand, like you were someone who was over here that I looked up to, and now your life is almost unrecognizable. How did this shift happen? And she ultimately ended up saying this, the call towards authenticity is a sacred and holy journey. And it's for the greater good. And I remember thinking, go talk to your family that's in shambles and tell me if that's the greater good. The greater good for who? Maybe for the individual. Here's what we're seeing. Is that seeking to only fulfill our desires often leads to slavery to them. We start off by following our desires, thinking they're going to give us pleasure and freedom in life. And before we know it, there's a form of Aikido on our own lives and we become the slave of those desires. And Paul highlights this in Ephesians chapter 2. This is what he says. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The Greek word here that's used for cravings and desires actually has the idea of the commands of the flesh. At first, we do what our desires want, and then they command us and tell us what we do. And this ultimately, if we're not careful, leads to a culture of addiction rather than a culture of freedom. One author put it this way, to get an idea of the scope of the problem, one need only explore the enormous resources this society dedicates to the treatment of addictions. A cursory search of the internet reveals that 12-step programs are available for those addicted to alcohol, narcotics, overeating, sex, work, debt, marijuana, cocaine, nicotine, gambling, and even emotions. The study and treatment of addictions is also becoming increasingly institutionalized and professionalized. And so what we see is we, we have a culture that says, do whatever you want, follow your heart, follow your desires, release them, follow your passion, and at the same time, we're a society that seems crippled by addictions. Now, I want to just be very, very careful here. I'm in no way wanting to judge people who have struggled with addiction and are doing the hard work of restoring their lives. I'm simply wanting to point out that following our desires often leads us to a form of slavery to them rather than the liberation our culture promises. Our culture is obsessed with freedom crippled by addiction and slavery. Now, here's the truth. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. And the walls of a city were basically designed to keep out hostile forces so that those living inside could thrive. And without a solid spirit, when our spirit is broken down without any self-control, Whatever whim or desire or force comes through our heart or our life, it can come in and it can terrorize and enslave our hearts. And I think one of the things we see in this pandemic is that this pandemic has actually revealed how untenable this vision of life is. Who are the heroes in our culture right now? Who are the heroes in our culture? The heroes in our culture are not selfish people. Anytime you see someone who refuses to wear a mask, Think back to those spring breakers. Anybody who says, I'm going to do it my way, we look at like, are you kidding? That is so selfish. The true heroes in our culture are not the ones doing what's in their heart. They're the ones who are sacrificing their own health for the sake of others. They're frontline workers. Our culture is having a moment of recognition right now where we see that a life of selfishness and doing whatever our desires tell us to do will not work as a vision for human flourishing. The second response to our desires, in many ways, is a response of fear. It's a fear of passion. And this is the way of religion. It's about repressing our desire. In the book of Colossians, Paul was addressing this new church who had heard the good news of the gospel. They'd been set free from the need to appease God by adherence to the law. They were living in the beauty and freedom of the gospel. And another group snuck in with a heresy that said the way to true change is through secret knowledge and extra practice. And so Paul tries to, to show them, no, the treasures in Christ don't rely 
an external morality to do the work only the Holy Spirit can do. Look at what he says in Colossians 2 verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And if you think of any community in the Bible that had self-imposed worship, false humility, and a harsh treatment of the body, but failed to restrain indulgence, you have to think of the Pharisees. Jesus' critique of the Pharisees is not that they believed the law. Jesus believed that too. He said, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. It was the way they practiced it. They relied on external rules and behavior modification to try and change the heart. And in doing this, religion became a force of oppression that did violence to others rather than a source of life. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called a rabbi by others. And so Jesus' critique is they've set themselves up in a position of authority. They've claimed the religious and moral high ground. And what they do with that high ground is not pull people up to it, but they allow a gap between what they teach and what they do to emerge that creates disillusionment and is defined by hypocrisy. Jesus says they raise up high standards, but they don't help anybody live them out. Everything they do has to be in public and recognized. They have to Instagram every religious moment. And they do this only for the praise of men. And Jesus says this, Matthew 23, 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. External religion internal decay. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Richard Lovelace, commenting on the Pharisees' approach to transformation, says this, their understanding of sin focuses upon behavioral externals, which they can eliminate from their lives by a little willpower and ignores the great submerged continents of pride, covetousness and hostility that is below the surface. And the reason Jesus is ultimately so angry at this is because religious repression doesn't work 
at restraining evil or transforming the heart. Shame will stop you till you get back to your secret life again. Guilt will stop you and restrain you until it wears off. The praise of man can motivate you to change until it disappears. But ultimately, it fails because it does not give us new desires or a new heart. It uses one form of power to manipulate another form of power, but it does not give us power to change. When I was in Bible college, I took my first class uh, on cultural studies. And so it was a class like philosophy and culture. And one of the big movies at the time was the movie American Beauty. And the professor at the time recommended that we see it as a critique and uh, some insights into the zeitgeist of the day. And so I remember going and seeing American Beauty and I think I was, maybe I was 21, maybe 22 at the time. Um, I had gone through a very, very strict phrase of not seeing any movies or watching any media. And uh, so going to see American Beauty at the recommendation of a Bible college professor, I thought, I wonder what he wants me to learn from this. And one of the scenes in American Beauty is about a Marine who's the father of a young man who's basically going the way of hedonism. He's refusing to follow the cultural script. He's doing whatever he wants. And it drives the father crazy. He's a disciplined Marine. Everything's about order. Everything's about, about procedure. Everything's about external restraint, living up to the proper standard. In the film, we see this Marine so angry at his gay neighbors. And he, he mocks them and he talks about how they disgust him and he's so angry at him. But at the end of his life, or at the end of the film, we see that he's violently opposed to them because he struggles with his own sexuality. And not to spoil the film for you, but the end of the movie is basically the Marine killing a man to cover up his secret wrestling with his own sexuality. And I remember leaving that movie and just being so shocked. And it, made, it basically made me ask the question, what is happening in our hearts when we're raging against something externally? And I came across this idea that the thing we often rage against the most is the thing we are most at war with within ourselves. Often we're raging culturally because we have desire we cannot control within. And the culture war, we believe, is going to give us victory in the inner war. But Fleming Rutledge reminds us that Jesus is not trying to make bad people good. Jesus is trying to bring dead people back to life. Look at what she says. Spirituality too, like religion, is essentially a human activity or trait that stands in stark contrast to faith. To put it in the simplest terms possible, spirituality is all too easily understood as human religious attainment, whereas faith itself is a pure gift without conditions and nothing can be done from our side to increase it or improve upon it. On the contrary, we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. And religion gets angry because grace isn't fair. Religion's about control, but grace is about surrender. Josh Howerton says this, in Jesus' parables, one sheep gets more attention than the 99. One-hour workers get paid the same as the 12-hour workers. A widow's two pennies are worth more than huge sums. 
Grace is terrible math. Christianity may be the only religion that tells us we have to repent of the good things we do in our lives if we do them to justify ourselves. So two responses. One response, man, just follow your desire. This is the way of hedonism. Next response, it's an overreaction. Repress your desire out of fear. This is the way of religion. But there's actually a third way, a life-giving way. And this is the way of Jesus. It's about redirecting our desire and passions in the way of formation. Now, I, I want to, before I unpack this verse, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, I, I want to clear up what the first century thought of self-control, and I want to I clear up how we are to understand it biblically, because if we're not careful, we're just going to impute our own understanding of this term as the way of Jesus, rather than seeing what Paul's actually doing in this text. The word that's used, the Greek word that's used for self-control here was actually a word that was quite it was actually a word that was quite commonly used uh, to articulate a vision of character that the Greeks valued. One scholar says this, this word was widely praised by the Greeks long before the time of Paul. In fact, ancient Greek philosophers such as Socrates considered it to be the foundational human virtue. Xenophon, a follower of Socrates, summarized well his teacher's views on the subject. Shall not every man hold self-control to be the foundation of all virtue and first lay this foundation firmly in his soul for who without this can learn any good or practice it worthily. So for them, it was about mastery of the self. Now, when I think about sort of the, the champions of self-control in our culture, one of the people I think of is Jocko. And uh, he's famous for this phrase, discipline equals freedom. Now, I actually love Jocko, and I've listened to a ton of his podcasts and read his books, and he's got some solid insights in there. But the vision that's often put forth is like, suck it up, you little baby. Get your act together. Grow up. Put away childish things. Pull your head in. Get some self-respect. Lead yourself. And the whole vision, if I could summarize it, is the same vision as, as self-control in the first century. It is control of the self for the sake of the self. Control of the self for the sake of the self. This is how first century people valued self-control. That's not the biblical definition of self-control. But this version of control, control of the self for the sake of the self, is all through our culture. Master your emotions. Master your career. Master your finances. Master your body. Master your enemies. Master your time. Master your life. It's a vision of getting rid of the things that we don't want in our lives and, and activating the forces we do want to get the outcomes that we want. And you know what that is still? It's still project self. Self-mastery for the sake of the self is not the biblical vision of self-control. Well, what is it then? I want to give you my definition of what I think this, past, this idea is teaching. And I want to show you how Paul subverts the cultural understanding with a life-giving vision of following Jesus. I think the biblical redefinition of self-control is this. Sacrificial stewardship of the self for the sake of others. 
sacrificial stewardship of the self for the sake of others. Philosopher Isaiah Berlin has uh, this famous idea, the two concept of liberty. And he talks about negative liberty or freedom from and positive liberty or freedom to. And we talk about this a lot in our culture, freedom from. This is our cultural vision. We, we don't have to follow the rules. We don't have to follow cultural scripts. We get to do what we want. But the biblical vision is about freedom to. It's freedom to become our full redemptive selves and reach our redemptive potential so that we can sacrificially use this for the good of others. So our freedom is not freedom for licentiousness or freedom to do what we want. It is freedom to serve other people in love. Now, this whole section on the fruit of the Spirit is actually a, a, it's framed, if you can see the outline, in a literary device called a chiasm. And what the chiasm is trying to do is basically frame, almost like the framing of a picture, so you can see what's inside of it. It's putting boundaries of attention. And so I've put this on the screen. You can see it there. It opens by saying this, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. So we're called to be free, but don't use it for hedonism. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Then, in the middle, talks about the acts of the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit, and then it closes with this. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. You see that he opens by talking about our freedom is for the sake of others, and he closes by saying, crucify your passions so you don't destroy one another. Another way we see Paul highlighting this subversion of this first century framework is that he puts it at the last point on the list of virtues, not at the beginning. In Greco-Roman virtue lists, self-control was at the start. In the list of the fruit of the Spirit, it's on the end. Why? I want to make the case that self-control is the mechanism that makes love a reality in a community. If love is the heart and the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace, patience, kindness, these are descriptors of love. It is self-control that enables all of that possibility to be realized in the life of a community. And this is why when Jesus talks about self-denial, he's not trying to repress us. He's trying to channel our passion for the good of others. Look what it says in Luke chapter 9. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world but to lose or forfeit their very self? So we are called to the sacrificial stewardship of ourselves for the sake of others, not to control ourselves for the sake of the self. Now, this this is a revolutionary teaching that God is giving us about what to do with our passion and our vision. But how do we go about cultivating it? 
Well, the first thing I, I want us to see is that you're not going to drift into biblical self-control. It's not going to happen on accident. You're not going to wake up one day and be like, oh my gosh, I'm to think I'm just going to um, sacrificially steward myself for the good of others today. This has to be cultivated. There is a war for the passion of our hearts. And the enemy loves nothing more than to distract us and to entrap us where we become slaves to the flesh again. That's why in 1 Peter 2.11 it says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. I remember when I was first coming into the ministry and an old pastor sat me down and he said, John, I'm sure you're going to realize that there's many pastors and uh, they're going to fail. And I want you to realize that they're not failing because they're wicked or they don't have any character. They're failing because there's moments of weakness and you're particularly susceptible and the enemy wants to come in and he wants to, he wants to go to war for these pieces of your life. So you've got to guard yourself against these moments. And I was like, well, what are these moments? And he said, well, these moments can be, they're, they're called behold moment. And I was like, what's a behold moment? And he says, whenever you're bored, whenever you're hungry, Whenever you're angry, whenever you're lonely, and whenever you're tired, you are disproportionately susceptible to giving in to the desires of the flesh. And I was thinking about our time right now, and I thought, behold, could also be described as, aka, the whole freaking quarantine time. Who isn't bored, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, at least in some moment into this? And so it's important that we, we be vigilant against the war for our souls. The enemy would love nothing more than to rob you of spiritual confidence and spiritual energy, ensnare you and entrap you so that when the time to rebuild comes, you don't have any energy or any convictions that you can. And so we've got to be aware that there is a war for us to steward what we have for the sake of others. So we're going to have to learn to resist this. How do we do that? Well, one of the ways that has really changed my thinking on this is the idea of identity resistance. I talked about this last year, but I feel like it needs to be revisited because I still see so many people trying to resist temptation basically through human willpower. And here's the difference between identity resistance and natural resistance. And I want to use the example of smoking. If you're trying to quit smoking and someone comes up to you and they say, do you want to smoke, mate? And your reply is, oh, I'd love to, but I'm trying to quit. What you're basically saying is, I'm a smoker who wants to smoke, but as long as my willpower works, I'll try not to. But if someone comes up to you and you have chosen a new identity, which is, I'm not a smoker, and they say, do you want to smoke? You simply say, I don't smoke. It's not who you are, not just what you don't do. And this is why Christians all the time seem so focused in the idea of our identity in Jesus. We forget about this. The place that Satan attacked Jesus was around the issue of identity. If you're really the son of God, if you're really the son of God, if Satan used his best temptation on Jesus and it was an identity temptation, don't you think he'll use the same thing on you? So we have to learn to resist, not out of willpower, but out of our identity. Do you want to sin? No, I'm good, man. I'm a saint. I'm not a sinner anymore. The second thing we have to do is create an environments that facilitate walking in the spirit rather than environments 
that facilitate giving into the flesh. There's a myth that weak people need systems and structure and that strong people can rely on their willpower alone. Not true. We are all vulnerable and environments help. That's why the Bible says, flee the evil desires of youth and find people who want what you want. We have to create environments to facilitate the vision of our life. This past week, I've been making a conscious effort to eat healthy and to exercise every day. And um, I, I come into the kitchen and my wife has stocked the shelf with so much chocolate and candy it's like Willy Wonka moved in. It was a straight up chocolate factory. And here I am trying to do the right thing. And I go in to make like a pour over and I look up and there's like my favorite chocolates. So I was like, let me just have a couple with the coffee just to pair it. And then I became a pairing genius between various blends and various candies. And my wife comes in and she complains. She says, who's been eating the chocolates? And I'm like, if you don't want me to eat them, don't put them in front of me. And then she, she drops this one liner, you should be strong enough to say no. And I'm like, it's not how it works. Look at me. This is a weakness. And then she drops this awful line. She says, stop eating my candy. Otherwise, I'll have nothing to decorate the cakes with. And I was like, woman, get behind me. Not only are you putting chocolate there, you're putting it there so that you can put it on top of a cake. I have no hope in this environment. And then she laughed and hid the candies. Now, I'm using this as an analogy here, but it's fundamentally true. Look at the greatest failure in the life of King David. In many ways, it was an environmental failure. It says at the start of the passage before the, the incident with Bathsheba, at the time of the year where the kings go off to war, David stays in Jerusalem. David finds himself in an environment in a city filled with women and no husbands. He should have been at war for the sake of others, but he finds himself on a roof and he gets entitled. And in a tragic Me Too moment and abuse of power, he basically coerces a young woman to sleep with him. She gets pregnant, she's married. You know how the story goes. I wonder what would have happened if David was at war with his brothers rather on a roof filled with women. So I wanna say this carefully. We've gotta be careful about the environments we create. I said at the start uh, of this uh, teaching on the fruit of the Spirit that to walk in the Spirit means you create an environment that the Holy Spirit loves to be a part of. Remember that story I talked about when I was first married and we had a cheap, terrible house, but I did everything within my power, leveraged all of my finances to beautify that house so that when Christy came in as a newlywed, she could see I tried to make something that she could thrive in. Walking in the Spirit, creating environments for the Spirit, does the same thing. The next thing we have to do to cultivate this vision of self-control, sacrificial stewardship of ourselves for the sake of others, is we have to leverage what God's given us, develop ourselves to our full potential, not for self-mastery, but for self-sacrifice for others. So we have to figure out what gifts God has put into our lives and how do we get those gifts to their full potential we have to figure out how much time we have and how we can use this to serve other people. We have to allocate our energy so that when we're called upon to love, we actually have the capacity to do it. We have to figure out how to steward our attention so that we can pay and focus on the things that really matter. 
We have to figure out how to use our resources, our money in ways where we don't spend everything on ourselves so we have margin to be generous. Many of us move to the city because we have a vision of becoming something in our career. A lot of people, one of the trends we talk about uh, these days is having a vision board for your life. And this is like a carefully curated, aesthetically pleasing little board with the kind of apartment you want, the kind of family you want, the kind of lifestyle you want. But I've never met a person who has a kingdom vision board. Let me ask you a question. As we get ready to have to rebuild our city, what do you think that God wants to do? Do you have a vision of how your gifts and your talents and your energies and your resources can be used to build God's kingdom at this moment? Who's thinking about the kingdom vision, not just their personal vision? Look, I know many people have been pushed out of uh, their normal lives because of this crisis. It doesn't matter if you had to leave for various reasons. The question is, in the next season, what is your vision of what God wants to build? And how can you be a part of it? I believe the church is moving into a time of incredible opportunity where followers of Jesus who develop themselves to their full potential, leverage what God has given them, who have mastered these gifts, stewarded these gifts, and who are willing to sacrificially pour themselves out for others are going to restore the credibility of the church and make Jesus beautiful in our cities again. God wants to use you. Do you have a kingdom vision? You see, ultimately, the reason we take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow Jesus is because we know in our hearts it's the way to life. This is what Jesus did. Jesus, in all of his fullness and glory, used those things sacrificially to benefit others. He used his relationship with his father to bring healing. He used his relationship with the Holy Spirit to do miracles on behalf of those who were plagued with illness and disease. He used his compassion, the strength and kindness of his heart to pour himself out on behalf of others. And he's asking you and I to do that too. Self-control is not about doing whatever you want Self-control is not about a religious spirit. It's about redirecting the passion in our heart towards Jesus and his kingdom for the sake of others to find life. And deep in our hearts, you've experienced this. You know when you use what God has given you for others, it brings a transcendent sense of joy and accomplishment that sin and pleasure cannot touch. So I don't know where you are today as you're listening to this. Maybe your life feels like you have been dominated and controlled by passions. Maybe you feel like your life has just been destroyed and whatever's coming in your heart, you've gone after it. And you just feel like, is there any chance my life could be rebuilt? And I believe the answer is yes. I believe Jesus wants to redirect the passions that have led you astray to his purposes and to bring you home. And to use you as one of those people that he can use to rebuild his kingdom and rebuild our cities at this time of history. And so my simple prayer is this. May the Holy Spirit produce in us the fruit of self-control so the possibility of life and love in the Spirit becomes the story and testimony of this church
and your life at this time. Come Holy Spirit, fill us with your power and fill us with self-control so we can steward who you've made it sacrificially for the good of others. In Jesus' name, amen.